Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates the unsolved death of federal prosecutor Jonathan Luna in 2003. It is a true story. But the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. Jonathan Luna was brutalized with multiple stab wounds and then put in a creek while still alive. You know, what'd you do with Jonathan? Why isn't he here? And he's like, oh, no, no, don't joke about that. I think they said it was a white car, but that's all I remember about that, just sketchy. That's the problem. There's not that shadowy ATM photo that shows two people, which allows the suicide theory to have weight. This is episode five of season three, The Character Assassination of Jonathan Luna. I'm your host, David Payne. It's been 10 years since a federal prosecutor was found dead in rural Lancaster County. We will find out who did this. Was he trying to stage some sort of attack and went too far? I'm a crook, you a crook, he a crook, everybody a crook in prison. It's interesting, you've probably heard in your reporting in Baltimore that it's sometimes called Smaltimore. And so it's funny, in in much of the reporting I did for the Baltimore Sun, you would find these weird overlaps where characters showed up, you know, in one place and then again in the next. It's a small, big town. As the Baltimore Sun's federal court reporter, Gail Gibson would see and hear from a lot of the same characters. Characters that would show up not only in the last case that Jonathan tried, but in another case that was tried the year prior, United States versus Naco Brown. So that was a bank robbery case that Jonathan was prosecuting. The judge in the case was Andre Davis, who was also a mentor of Jonathan's. And so in the moment, thinking about, oh, Ken Rathnell's the defense attorney in this case, right? Like, but this is an, an interesting when you pull back and think about, let's look more fully at the cast. And what do we learn from each player in the cast feels important. And it wasn't just Ravenel and Jonathan who were involved in the bank robbery trial. It seemed like the entire cast would be part of the fiasco otherwise known as the missing money case. Archie Tuminelli would have a cameo representing a woman who assisted an escape attempt by Nako Brown. And Jackie Rodriguez Koss, the prosecutor who wrote the memo to the judge about Warren Grace, would be second chair to Jonathan. The case came to me because Jonathan was getting ready to take that case to trial. And I had prior bank robbery trial experience. And so he basically came to me and said, will you do this trial with me? And I said, sure. And that's how the case came So it is perhaps not surprising that on the morning that Jonathan did not show up to court to execute the Stash House plea agreements, the audience made a mental connection between the prior season's drama and the one that was unfolding before them. The U.S. attorney, Tom DiBaggio, had a press conference about what had happened late that night. I mean, it was in darkness. 
I can remember standing and talking to Jane Miller, who's a longtime television journalist in Baltimore, about what do you think happened? This is crazy. And she and I, I can't remember who said it first, but it was a conversation about, are you going to write about the bank robbery case in this story? And this innocent, in-the-moment question between two of Baltimore's most authoritative media figures appeared to send the FBI down a multi-year rabbit hole that I would find myself following 17 years later. A rabbit hole that would leave me reflecting not only on Jonathan's life, but my own. When Jonathan Luna's body was found under mysterious circumstances, Lancaster, Pennsylvania authorities classified the death as a homicide. It was only later, when the FBI took over the investigation, that theories of suicide, perhaps driven by what happened in the bank robbery case, began to emerge. Although it's not like the FBI went 100% towards suicide right away. In fact, the FBI would first plow the traditional ground associated with any mysterious death. Pretrial Services Supervisor Barbara Skidmore saw it firsthand. The first rumor that circulated was about relationships with other people. There was a, a young girl who worked in the little canteen, you know, where you get coffee in the morning. Very, very sweet girl, very attractive. And she was a bit of an artist. She said to me, you know, you, you say, oh, my God, isn't it terrible? She goes, yeah, the FBI talked to me. And I thought, the FBI talked to you? Why would they talk to you? And here's what I thought. I thought, what, did they go to every young girl in the building and talk to them? Did he ever hit on you? It was really weird. And while you can't fault investigators for casting a wide net, you can question their judgment, and you can judge their actions. Because it wasn't just chasing absurd and spurious threads like the coffee girl. It was that the FBI had developed a pattern of leaking a series of victim-blaming circumstances that frankly colored the public's perception of what happened. They had a case that was going sour. He was womanizing with it the was, woman in the camp. Oh, wait a minute. And there was also, you know, not just with women, but with uh, prostitutes, paying for sex. He had credit card debt. I mean, all this stuff was swirling around. And you're like, Jonathan? You know, like, boy, I guess I don't know people. The FBI leaks that made people who knew Jonathan believe they didn't know him were rampant. They also strained credulity. For instance, the FBI leaked that someone with the name of Jonathan Luna had posted a message on an internet sex message board six years before he died, as if that could possibly have any relevance. And every drip, drip, drip had a cumulative effect. Yeah, it just seems odd given what he did and the kinds of cases he was involved in. He was dealing with the worst of the worst. And I don't even know about his other cases. You know, these were just the ones that were going on at the time. Yeah, well, and think about it in the context with the evidence that they had, which was his throat was slit. He was stabbed 36 times, you know, and they're interviewing the woman in the canteen. It's absurd. I mean, if you would see her, she was the sweetest thing. I mean, you know, she was probably like 23 years old. I mean, maybe. When she told me that, my mouth just dropped. I said, what? And so then we're all left with this kind of just ugh mm -hmm. feeling and this mm -hmm. impression. 
sometimes they get a theory in their minds and they fail to investigate the other potential things. I don't know. When what your job for a living is to prosecute these bad guys and that wouldn't have been more robustly explored is strange. In the absence of any credible theory or evidence that athletically built Jonathan was overpowered by a woman and stabbed with a penknife 36 times, we will not spend any more time here. And that takes us back to where we started this episode, when the idea of a possible connection between the so-called missing money case and Jonathan's death first surfaced between reporters Gail Gibson and WBAL's Jane Miller. Do you know about the bank robbery? Yes, of course. And the money, missing money? Yes, let's talk yeah, about it. Yeah, let's talk about it. I actually did that story. What does that mean? that story when it happened. When $36,000 essentially walked out of the federal courthouse and he was the prosecutor, $36,000 in evidence disappeared. When someone in the courthouse told me and I got it confirmed through FBI or someone that they had had a lapse <laughs> in security. <laughs> Severe. More than a lapse. Yeah. yeah, right. Correct. And so it came up again, obviously, in the investigation of his death, because it was in a, a year of his death that happened. Right. But it didn't go anywhere. Jane is right that technically the investigation into the missing money never came to a resolution. But the mere coupling of the two cases by the press had an unquestionable impact on Jonathan's death investigation a year later. And so when the theory of the suicide first became public, it was another point to look back at what questions were still there around the the bank robbery case and the missing evidence. And could that have driven a person to feel like they didn't have other choices other than to end their life? What did you think about that notion that somehow it was related to this and that led him to commit suicide? You know, in in all candor, I have never known whether these two incidents are linked. They are both extraordinarily spectacular incidents to happen in any federal courthouse in this country. And that it's impossible to not look at those set of circumstances side by side. I cannot say that they were linked, but I know that law enforcement looking into Jonathan's death was also looking at everything around that other case and that neither has been resolved. Somebody Somewhere will return right after this break. For many months now, I've been racking my brain trying to find the missing link that would lead me to the same conclusion the FBI apparently reached, that Jonathan took his own life by stabbing himself 36 times. On its face, it's a preposterous theory, and I kind of feel gaslighted every time I try it on. But there was this one unresolved issue out there. What exactly happened in the missing money case? Was there a motive there for someone to kill Jonathan? Or was there enough shame for him in what happened that he did himself in? I mean, was there any connection between the missing 36K and the 36 wounds? 
in my 14-year career as a federal district judge, United States versus Naco Brown was one of the more remarkable prosecutions. It was really quite a remarkable... Former U.S. District Court Judge Andre Davis is a legal giant and a pillar of the Baltimore legal community. After 14 years as a trial judge and eight years on the Fourth Circuit, Judge Davis turned his life's work towards police reform as the Baltimore City Solicitor before recently retiring for good. And he was gracious enough to tell us what he remembered about the missing money case he presided over almost two decades ago. Thanks for uh, taking time. Are you enjoying retired life? More than you can imagine. My wife is not very happy that I don't get as much exercise as I should, but I, I will after who gets enough exercise? Nobody. <laughs> true, true. So I want to introduce you to Jody. And while Judge Davis's body may not be in the shape his wife wants, his mind is as sharp as ever. Despite a storied legal career where he handled thousands of cases, he has no problem recalling the most minute details of the United States versus Naco Brown. It's really remarkable that I remember so much detail and I think if I've been a good judge it was because every case was really about human beings what they wished for what they were striving for and so this particular case Nico Brown the facts really stood out to me I think in part because of the work that Ken Ravenel did to personalize Nico. What do you remember about the facts around how these robberies happened what he did in the bank and so forth? I remember that NACO was active in a church. And what came to light was that NACO wanted money to support the theatrical productions that NACO was involved in through the church. So NACO fancied himself as someone who was deeply involved with young people, deeply involved in a community, was a person of faith. And here was this paradox that this guy who was so described chose to fund his incredible charitable and religious activities through bank robbery. And so it always struck me as really remarkable. The story of Nako Brown is indeed remarkable in more ways than one. And his trial on four bank robbery charges would provide just a glimmer of the onion that is Nako Brown. I remember thinking, like, why is this guy going to trial, you know? And what was driving that decision? I don't know, because I don't know what the... Even though she was the more experienced prosecutor of the two, AUSA Jackie Rodriguez-Koss was riding shotgun as Jonathan prosecuted Nako Brown in Judge Davis's courtroom. So I was not involved in the original investigation of the case. Or, or what had transpired, I came in specifically to assist Jonathan in preparing the case for trial. Were you involved in the questioning of witnesses or cross, or how did you guys divide it up? Sure, so preparing for trial means that we were going to you know, interview all of our witnesses again, this time around with the idea of actually preparing what would be their testimony at trial. I just remember it being like, why is this guy going to trial? You know, I do remember that. And in fact, Nico Brown must have been thinking the same thing at some point. So Nico Brown was notable because it did go to trial before a jury, although he did 
attempt to plead guilty a couple of times before we had the trial. He reached plea agreements with the government twice. And for one reason or another, he changed his mind. But what was notable most of all about Nako Brown was that it was one of two cases I had that were what I call vault jobs. And the typical bank robbery is a teller typically places anywhere from $900 to $2,200 in a bag, and the person escapes from the bank. The, the Nako Brown perpetrators went into the bank vault and collected cash in a large container. And so they got away with $50,000, $70,000 in bank funds. In the docket, it does say that you ordered $378,000 worth of restitution. So I'm guessing that was the total amount that was taken from the bank. Actually, the actual take would have been more than $400,000 because the FBI had actually recovered a sizable amount of money. I think something on the order of close to 60, 65,000, something in that range from the co-defendant, Nako Brown's co-defendant. Judge Davis's memory is as good as he thinks it is. The FBI seized $68,000 from the home safe of Brown's co-defendant, a guy named Kevin Hilliard. And just like Warren Grace a year later, the FBI would flip Hilliard and turn him state's evidence against NACO. Kevin Hilliard, what's his name? Something of a down and out kind of guy. And I became quite persuaded that NACO Brown very deftly manipulated Kevin into his participation. Not that Kevin wasn't responsible, but I don't think Kevin ever would have thought about robbing a bank before he came under the influence of NACO Brown. And he is described as the getaway driver. Right. Is that your recollection? That is my recollection. He never entered the bank. He was the wheel man and waiting outside for Nako to come out of the bank. What do you remember about what he did in the bank and so forth? You gotta laugh at this. Part of Nako's modus operandi was of course to use costuming from his theatrical activities at the church in the bank robberies. And so he would wear false mustaches. He wore costumes. And I'll never forget that the day he was arrested, Nako was dressed in surgical scrubs. And he had a stethoscope either on his person or certainly in the car. You know, like, like we like to say, you can't make this stuff up. Indeed, you can't. Not only the circumstances of the bank robbery, but the circumstances leading up to the trial as well. He had an escape attempt during his pretrial detention, which was, again, just remarkable. He had a somebody ship him a hacksaw blade hidden in one of a pair of Timberland boots. I remember that. The attorney who would represent the sideshow boot shipper was none other than Arky Tuminelli. But it would be Arky's co-counsel from the Stash Records case, Ken Ravenel, that would be the lead counsel in the main tent. Ken Ravenel was the defense attorney, and I had gotten to know Ken when I was on the state bench, 
and I had high regard for his ability. He always made excellent legal arguments, and he was a really a mature attorney, and it was always a pleasure when a good lawyer appeared before a judge, and when two good lawyers appeared, it was really the best of all possible worlds. And that's what Judge Davis got when he oversaw U.S. v. Naco Brown. Or put another way, Jonathan Luna v. Ken Ravenel. Jonathan Luna was a young assistant U.S. attorney that I had befriended, and we formed something of a mentor-mentee relationship. Jonathan Luna, I think, did a good job, a really excellent job, as I recall, of pointing out the similarities in the three robberies, the stature of the perpetrator, and why this guy sitting there at the trial looking perfectly harmless and polite was the person depicted in those videos as the bank robber. And for all my affinity for Jonathan, he and the assistant U.S. attorney who tried the case with him, they were still a little green. And so Ken was put in the position of yanking their chain from time to time and making life a little less pleasant for them than they had hoped. Of course, that didn't preclude Nako Brown from doing a little yanking of his own either. I was reminded he tried to fire Ravenel. That's right. And I think he tried to fire Ravenel more than once. So there was all of that. There was the overall narrative. But for all of that drama, the facts of the case would ultimately lead to a predictable and pedestrian outcome. They convicted on three, and the jury couldn't reach a verdict on the fourth of bank robbery. So that was the story of the case, that here was this man of faith devoted to his community and his church who committed these bank robberies and who terrified, absolutely terrified, the tellers. But once he got in the bank, he was in total control. In addition to the facts of the bank robberies, the players involved, and the defendant himself, the trial of Nako Brown would, of course, be memorable for one other reason. Sometime between the time the jury started deliberating and the final accounting of the evidence after conviction, $36,000 of the cash evidence, about half of the cash that was recovered from Kevin Hilliard's home, disappeared into thin air. I feel like I remember talking with Judge Davis about that story and his just real astonishment that that could have happened in his courtroom and his real concern for how it was being investigated and concern for Jonathan, that certainly as the prosecutor in the case, he bore responsibility for how evidence had been handled. Do you have a recollection of the various theories around what actually happened? I mean, there's a limited number of people who have access to any federal courtroom you know, the attorneys on both sides, the judge and their staffs, and sort of law enforcement court security figures. And so if cash evidence went missing, there was a really finite set of players for whom could have been involved in that. And the players included not only the FBI and many of the cast from the Stash House Records case, but also all of Judge Davis's courtroom personnel. I was coming out of court one day, and 
There were two court clerks there. One of them was the courtroom clerk during the case when the money went missing. This is like right around a, a day or a couple days after Jonathan, you know, was found dead. And I said something about this whole thing about Jonathan. And the courtroom clerk said to me something about she was really angry about because all the court personnel that were around that courtroom and that money became subjects in who could have taken the money. And she was really pissed off that she made clear that Jonathan jeopardized her and other people when this happened. Yeah, they interviewed 84 people for that. Yeah. So they're... Well, that... Yeah, I didn't know that, but that's consistent with what I thought. Oddly, the people doing the interviewing were FBI agents from the Baltimore field office, the same field office that was certainly as or more responsible than Jonathan for securing the cash evidence in the case. And with agents talking to everyone in the courthouse, the tongues started to wag. Oh, the scuttlebutt was that, you know, who took the money and where did the money go? But Jonathan Luna's name was involved in that. It's like, really? A prosecutor took the money? I don't think so. Not only did the U.S. Attorney's Office, you know, Tabaggio believe that Jonathan took the money, but so did people in that The story I heard is he tried to blame it on the FBI agent, from what I heard. And after that, I think Jonathan was not the most favored person on the FBI relationship list. With accusations and finger-pointing going on, the FBI would do what the FBI does, ask everyone at the court to take polygraphs. And to my knowledge, everybody said yes. And just informally, I, I seem to recall hearing that there were a couple of people around the courthouse who were polygraphed. And I was interviewed, everybody in the courthouse was interviewed and I noted from the 302 that you sent me, David, that Jonathan was asked and agreed to take a lie detector test, but I don't think they ever developed a strong suspect. I mean, the the FBI was embarrassed beyond description. That's something that can never happen, should never happen, and, and what can you say? That should never have happened. And there was another thing that may not have happened. And I say may because the FBI has not officially released who all took polygraphs and who didn't. And I also know secondhand that Jonathan had agreed to take a polygraph test regarding the money. But at some point when the time came to do it, he refused to take the polygraph test. I kind of suspect that others were asked to take a polygraph test. And, and it probably wound up that he was the only one that wound up refusing. But was that true? Was Jonathan Luna the only person who refused to take a polygraph when questioned about the missing money? Not according to the man who originally stole the money from the bank in the first place. The call is from... Echo Brown. An inmate at a federal prison. This call is being recorded and is subject to monitoring. Reverend, I was the only one that didn't take the polygraph test. 
he was the only one I didn't get interviewed by the FBI. So when I looked at all of the uh, discovery that I got from the FBI, it took me 10 years to get it. He was the only one that was in part of that interview. How do you know that? Because I haven't seen because that. Because I, I don't have anything. Once again, I have all the discovery from that investigation, from the missing evidence investigation, the stolen evidence. I have all the discovery of that. And his name didn't come up one time in the interview. Not one time. And whether we could deduce anything from this claim of missing documentation about missing money is an open question. But the credibility of the FBI, Jonathan Luna, Nako Brown, and yes, Ken Ravenel, would not only rest on what could be factually verified, but also on some more recent events. Events that remain, like Brown's claim, merely allegations that have yet to be proven in a court of law seen him on television, you've seen him in the courtroom, but you haven't seen him like this. One of Baltimore's most sought-after defense attorneys found himself uh, defended in court today. Ken Ravenel is facing false racketeering, money laundering, and drug charges. Next time on Somebody Somewhere. This is a major league drug trafficking case. This wasn't small, local. This was nationwide. I'm just, I'm very observant. I see things, and maybe it's the Holy Spirit telling me to look at certain things. At the end of the trial, he literally brought another briefcase. God is a God of second chances, and so he definitely recognized that this was his chance to get it right. That makes sense, actually, more than he went and stabbed himself 36 times. Ain't nobody buying that bullshit. There goes the devil telling me to lie again. Says I'm around me, says it's all right to pretend that you can get more than you give. Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Original score and voiceover work provided by Hallie Payne. Artwork provided by Evan McGlynn and Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Jonathan Luna case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Money